Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are continuing in our two-parter on the Gospel of John. So if you heard our last episode, and if you haven't, we strongly advise you to do so, we talked about where the Gospel of John came from, why it is so different from the synoptics, and how we should take its intentions. So now in this next episode, we are going to do with the Gospel of John what John the Evangelist actually wanted us to do with it, which is to harvest its fruits for the sake of faith. As John himself says in chapter 20, verse 31, These things have been written in order that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. That is actually the purpose of reading the Gospel of John. So we are going to walk through some key passages um, along that way. Well, that's very good, Sarah. That's the probably the original conclusion to the Gospel of John if chapter 21 is an addendum. And that tells us what the intention of the text is, and that's always a good clue to how to read a text when you explicitly are told, this is what I'm trying to do. Read it in that light. Now, note well, what is articulated in John 20, 31 is not simply a trust, a vague trust occasioned by a naked claim that Jesus is the revealer of God, like a bolt out of the blue. Believe it or not. Rather, It's a belief that is focused upon an object of trust, namely the figure or person of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And thus, this belief is necessary because it answers the question of who Jesus is and therefore why trust in him grants the promised eternal life. And the reflection here is very simple. The man Jesus, by right, can neither give nor promise what he himself does not possess in his own authority. So that's the bridge, that realization that the gospel is not simply fiducia, but it's a fiducia with an assent and a a cognition. It's a knowledge of faith that must be articulated according to John 20, 31. That's what constitutes the bridge between the earliest Christian gospel narratives and the synoptics and the great Christological and Trinitarian dogmas of the early church. Right. You mentioned at the outset of our last episode that that the Gospel of John is the bridge from the synoptics to the Nicene and Chalcedonian formulas. And that is not a bad thing, but in fact, a good thing, a, a, a clearer and uh, not clearer, but a clear and precise articulation of the central claims made about the person of Jesus Christ for Christian faith. Yeah, very good. Good. Well, so let's just um, dig in. So we've selected a number of passages slash episodes in the Gospel of John to uh, work through. So we are going to start, not surprisingly, with John chapter 3. As a rule, if anyone knows any verse of the Bible, it's John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And uh, But the context of this whole story is a secretive meeting by night where Nicodemus, who is one of the Jewish uh, temple leaders, comes to seek out Jesus. Um, now, if you remember, again, back to our last episode, we talked about the gospel as John as documenting the final schism within the early Jewish community after the destruction of the temple when it is no longer possible to tolerate Jesus believers in the synagogue. And so what we see embodied in someone like Nicodemus is the figure who is kind of caught between these two. So Nicodemus seems to be an important and powerful figure within the synagogue leadership slash temple leadership. And yet at the same time, he's drawn to Jesus, but he can't do it openly. So he goes by night. And that's the context in which this, you know, most potent and beloved statement of soteriology arises. Yeah, that's right. And there's a very interesting, even a, you can even almost say a classic initial example of the Johannine enigma. That's what I called in the last episode, the way in which Jesus speaks, speaks in enigmatic ways that uh, often baffle his uh, interlocutors. But then the uh, uh, readers of the Gospel of John get clued in to the play on words and or the paradox that's being, being spoken here. So Nicodemus shows up. And uh, the first thing Jesus does, it's not exactly a very friendly greeting, is it? You know, somebody's coming to see you by night and wants to know about you. And Jesus goes right away. Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anosan. Now, this as a Greek word, anosan, and it has a double meaning. It can mean again, or it can mean from above. Nicodemus takes it in the first way to mean again. And so he uncomprehendingly replies, how can anyone be born again after grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? All right. So you see there's a kind of a literalism here on the part of Nicodemus. He takes the word to mean again and then he imagines that it means re-entering mama's womb. And Jesus, of course, then contradicts him. I tell you, no one can uh, see the kingdom of God without being born of the water and spirit. Born of the water and spirit. Now, this is clearly an allusion to baptism. And Right. Baptism here is not distinguished from the work of the Spirit, born anew through the water and Spirit. And then Jesus goes on, right, uh, to talk about the Spirit uh, being sovereign. The Spirit blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from or going. So it is with those born of the Spirit. How can these things be? And Jesus replied, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things, right? So it's just a, an, an enigma that baffles Nicodemus, right? But the explanation is it doesn't mean being born literally a second time. It means being born from above by the Spirit through the water. 
Okay, so speaking of enigmas, let's just pause for a moment here because uh, misreadings of this born-again passage persist very strongly to our day. Uh, many listeners will be familiar with a certain segment of um, especially Protestant Christianity that emphasizes this born-again experience, which is drawn, of course, directly out of this. So um, how can we talk about or think about this claim on the born-again experience and with what um, we perceive John to be doing in this passage. Yeah, without getting into a long digression on the theology of being born again, uh, it really goes back to the Second Great Awakening and the preaching, especially of Whitfield, who, in the spirit of the English Enlightenment, wanted to connect with people wanting to have things verified in their own experience. You know, how do you know it's true? John Locke would say against the rationalists on the continent, he would say, you know it when you know it in your own experience, through your own sense experience. And so there's this kind of foundationalism of knowledge that is rooted in personal experience. And this comes into the American tradition, which kind of really nurtures the evangelical doctrine of the new birth. And the being born again then means that you have a palpable, sensible experience of the love of God being uh, poured into your heart and remaking you into a new person. And if you don't have that experience in a way that you can narrate it, you have to then pray for it and hope for it and put yourself in a position to, to get it. That's really uh, what counts is that uh, experiential knowledge of the love of God. That's the doctrine, evangelical doctrine of being born again. Right. And it goes beyond just knowledge. I mean, it, it becomes actually the saving event itself, the, the personal experience. So I don't think you and I would object to anyone having a profound personal experience of the love of God poured into oneself. Absolutely it's not. It's the, yeah. the flip side of the, unless you have it, and then when you have it, then in that moment you are saved. I, I think it's demonstrably far beyond both the intention of John 3, but also it really, I think, sharply contradicts the Jesus statement, the spirit blows where it wills, you cannot control it, and the implicit connection to baptism in water and the spirits, which of, is generally you know, denigrated in revival traditions. That's right. So it's the sovereignty of the spirit that Jesus is teaching that is not in any kind of human control. So you can't cultivate an experience and call it the new birth. Okay, good. That's covered. Well, let's go on then. I, I you know, we we pointed out last time, Sarah, that the in John you have this you have to have this insight that the human being in the story, Jesus, is always already the risen one who continues to speak by the Spirit inspired preaching, uh, which gives the testimony about Jesus uh, in the community of that beloved disciple, and I pointed out last time, and I want to emphasize this, far from being offended by this insight into the nature of the Gospel of John, those who preach and those who listen to sermons as to the word of life should be exhilarated that they stand squarely in this Johannine process of handing on the Gospel, dare to speak and dare to believe the Gospel 
with the authority, thus says the Lord. I think that's the encouragement we want to give to all of our listeners about this theology of John. And I I think a second thing to bring out as a bridge to what we want to do now is that the retelling of the synoptic story in John is meant for the informed faith of believers, as I mentioned at the outset, so that they know what they believe. In other words, in old-fashioned language, it's for dogmatic, not apologetic purposes, to strengthen trust in God by knowledge of God in Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. So that's why Jesus undertakes this dogmatic instruction of the teacher of Israel who ought to know better. And in so doing, for example, he appeals to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And Jesus says, I also will be lifted up and draw all people to myself and alluding to the the healing power of looking upon that brazen serpent for the people who'd been bitten by the snakes. And then also Jesus continues to to talk after the famous John 3.16 passage is to specify that Jesus' intention is not actually to condemn or to look for reasons to for condemnation, that that is not um, the orientation. The orientation is towards salvation. However, it has this sharp edge that it's actually people end up exposing their own darkness and condemning themselves when they come into contact with the light and salvation that is Jesus Christ. Wow, yeah, that's really good. Bultman had a great essay about this. There's the Greek word krisis comes into English as crisis. But crisis in Greek means the the judgment and the division. A judgment is always a a separation of the house, a division of the house. The judgment justifies some as innocent and judges others as guilty. And so the coming of Jesus into the world in the Gospel of John is its crisis, its crisis, its uh, division of the house. And that happens ineluctably with the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the intention of the gospel is to be that Jesus lifted on the cross will draw all people to himself. But the very assertion of that saving message will inevitably, ineluctably affect a division of the house. Yeah, some people are going to be drawn toward Jesus kicking and stre- screaming every step of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so it would right, seem. Exactly. Right. So we've seen in John 3, there's this allusion to baptism. I should also mention, it's interesting, um, John is the only gospel where there is any mention of Jesus' disciples baptizing while he is still with them before his death and resurrection. And then there's a brief mention that Jesus baptizes, and then a little bit later, John Crickson says, oh, sorry, I got that wrong. Jesus wasn't baptizing, only his his disciples. (laughs) But other than that, there's no no mention of Jesus' disciples baptizing in the synoptics at all. It's all post- uh, post-resurrection, uh, that baptism begins as a practice. So that probably also reflects its both its later date and the supreme importance of baptism. But now let's turn to John 6. So uh, uh, we were joking that here you will finally hear us uh, say for the second time that Luther was wrong about something. He was wrong in his condemnations of believing Jews and his uh, terrible statements against them. So here's the second place he was wrong. <laughs> Luther said John 6 has absolutely nothing to do with the Holy Supper, with Holy Communion. Um, now, why he said this is specifically because of the passage where Jesus says, um, 
the flesh avails nothing, only the spirit gives life. And Luther is arguing about this against Zwingli, who is arguing against Luther that there is no real physical presence in the bread and wine, that it is a purely spiritual presence. And Luther evidently thought the only way he could shore up his argument against Zwingli is to just say, John 6 has nothing whatsoever to do with Holy Communion. Well, I'm sorry, Luther, you probably got that one wrong. But we should note that there is no Lord's Supper, Last Supper narrative in John at all. There's foot washing, but no final supper. And so this seems to be, Dad, another one of those cases where you said that John takes the synoptic tradition and re-narrates it for his own purposes so we can pick up what it's referring to, but it's not happening in the same way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Luther was misled by his polemics and the polemical situation of the conflict especially with Oikolampadius, a, co a compatriot of uh, Heydrich Zwingli, on this issue. Uh, and we don't need to spend much time on that. Uh, yes, there, we didn't make this observation, but it's important. There's no narrative of the Last Supper uh, uh, in uh, comparable to what we have in the Synoptics and in Paul in 1 Corinthians in John. In its place, we find a story that has no parallels in the synoptics or anywhere else, namely Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, right? So and that, again, has a certain affinity with the Gospel of Luke, where, at the, um, where Luke relocates the statement about being servant of all uh, uh, into the story of the Last Supper. And you can almost imagine that John is taking his occasion here to construct the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper uh, from that prompt. Uh, but so, if John deliberately omits the narrative of the Last Supper, what's the reason? Well, the older scholarship, uh, the 19th century, up through including Boltzmann, thought that this was part of John's anti-sacramentalism. Uh, that John, <laughs> that, yes, that John Sorry. was a word-alone theologian who had no uh, sympathy with rituals, liturgies, and sacraments and all that uh, paraphernalia, ecclesiastical paraphernalia that just got in the way of the pure reception of the word and faith in it. And I think that's quite obviously wrong. John 6 provides the occasion for the gospel's teaching on Eucharistic eating. Uh, and we can say that, Sarah, for a couple of reasons. Why don't you give us some? Well, I think the first thing that we want to say is that um, John like all New Testament literature, draws on and incorporates Old Testament literature and does not see a hostility between the two, but a deep connection. And uh, as we, as I've said with like Leviticus, for example, it is the building blocks out of which the New Testament is assembled. So one clear um, allusion to this is talking about the manna in the wilderness. So the Jesus does not reject 
um, the manna in the wilderness as a gift given to the people of Israel, he only clarifies that it is not Moses who gives the bread from heaven, but the father who gives the bread from heaven. And so he's taking, in, in a way, he's there, there seems to be this uh, subtle polemic against a wrong reading of Israel, which is overvaluing Moses in the, in, and putting too much weight on him. But it's not to reject the miracle of feeding or of bread altogether. It's simply to say it's actually God's gift. And in fact, God is going to build on this gift and give you true bread from heaven, not only the the feeding that happened in the wilderness. Right. The feeding in the wilderness was temporary, but the bread from heaven is eternal, right? That's the contrast, isn't it? The continuity and the contrast. And if, if John's community is already, as we presume, celebrating the Lord's Supper in you know, whatever form that would have taken, then what they see is every time they worship, the miracle of bread from heaven is renewed. It is given every time you know, we gather in the Lord's name. It's not like you have a limited amount of communion in your lifetime. <laughs> it keeps going. That's why uh, um, Ignatius of Antioch, who we had a podcast about last year, um, uh, on the basis of John 6, called the Eucharist the food of or the bread of immortality. Uh, and I think here too, Luther, in spite of his uh, misunderstanding of John 6, likewise affirmed that the Lord's Supper is the food of immor- immortality, uh, a teaching which the 19th century German scholarship dismissed as the physical theory of redemption. <laughs> Yes, God knows we don't want anything good to happen to our bodies. That would be so unworthy and unspiritual. So your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus says. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, that's as physical a theory of redemption as you can get if you ask me. Yeah, it does. I think the Greek also, like, it really has the sense of, like, gnashing and mashing. Yeah, like, right. it's not just eating, but it's, like, crunching down with your molars kind of thing. And, you know, and further to... Yeah, and and then to to further build on the obvious connection, sorry, Luther, to the Last Supper is is that he also talks about his blood. So like, if it was just the bread thing, you could see it as an allegory of the manna. But he does just does go on to say that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So I, I think that's beyond any doubt there that it's it's talking about both aspects of Holy Communion. And um, it's funny at the end of this little paragraph, it said Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, which is a, you know, his significant um, adult home city in the synoptics. And of course, John is emphasizing here it's in the synagogue. But this actually gave rise to the so-called Capernatism, which is a... Uh, the the gross out vampire understanding of the Lord's Supper that you're you know like a yeah and you know again Luther is very inconsistent and very funny actually about that because you know Luther clearly thinks that the flesh and blood of Christ that believers eat and drink uh, is somehow this mysteriously glorified body and blood of Christ uh, it's not and he said this so graphically it's not like the sausage hanging in the butcher shop. 
Right. So and and so it's a blood sausage, obviously. It's a Copernican literalism that takes offense at this. And what is it indeed referring to is the self-donation of Christ culminating in his cross, that he gives himself uh, to death on the cross uh, for the life uh, of the world. Now, it's interesting here, isn't it? In this immediate context at the uh, in John 6, we hear the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? How can this be? That's the old, for Luther, the old devil's question. How can this be? Give me a scientific or metaphysical explanation uh, that makes this claim intelligible, comprehensible in terms of the possibilities and probabilities of life in the world. Uh, And Jesus, instead of answering the how question, simply doubles down in the passage, Sarah, that you read and reiterates the, this, this uh, uh, saving truth of Eucharistic eating and drinking. But what's interesting is that following that uh, teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, many of his disciples heard it. They said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? That's an interesting uh, concession, isn't it? They were complaining about it, right? And Jesus says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Does this offend you? Verse 66, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. And that's where we have then the... His disciples. Right. That's where we have the famous version of Peter's confession. Jesus says... uh, Do you too want to go? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You uh, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter's confession is now attached to this overcoming of the scandal uh, of Jesus' assertion that no one has life in them except the one who eats and drinks the flesh and blood of the Son of God. Right. And if it's taking up the synoptic tradition, then confession that Jesus is the Christ is essentially the same action as receiving the Lord's Supper in faith as the body and blood of Christ. Those two are intimately connected. And I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but this connects very nicely with the the first epistle of John. Someday we'll do a podcast on the three letters of John. But there uh, we know that the the schism that has occurred in the Johannine community is about docetism. It's about the, it's about the idea that Jesus was not truly a flesh and blood human being, and that there, and and for the reason that a flesh and blood human being can have no saving significance, it's the spirit as in the sense of being mind and not matter, intellect and not feeling. Uh, in that sense, spirit, not flesh. That's what's saving. The flesh avails nothing. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of the antinomy of flesh and spirit along literalistic lines that doesn't grasp that it's a conflict between self-reliance, that's flesh, and reliance on God, that's spirit. 
Yeah, actually, in the same chapter six, before this all happens, they ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So Jesus reframes that question from, you know, what are we supposed to do to saying, I'll tell you what the work of God is. The work of God is that you believe. Also making it very clear again that belief or faith is the work of God in us, not not something that we generate and offer up to God. And it, that's why in the first place, uh, faith is nothing but abiding in the word, abiding in Christ, letting Christ be Christ, letting the promises of God prevail in our lives. It's a vita passiva, a passive life in the first place. And that is in order that the active life of the Christian is the life that is conformed to Christ, so that it's Christ in his good life and good work who is active in the new life of the believer. We could mention here, just in passing before we go on, because I think we've talked about this in, a, in the past, that this anti-docetism is um, also the real meaning of the Doubting Thomas story in John 20. What, doubt, what Thomas doubts is not that the disciples have seen a glorious or a divine figure or an apparition of some kind. What Thomas doubts is that the glorious vision that the disciples have seen uh, is, in fact, the same one who was crucified. That's what Thomas doubts. It's a specific doubt about the identity of the glorious one who has appeared to the disciples. And so when Thomas uh, finally places his hands into the wounds of the risen Jesus, he realizes that the glorious risen one is the same person as the one who had been crucified. You can't articulate anti-docetism more sharply than that. And as if to make the point, Thomas falls down and acknowledges my Lord and my God, the very picture of orthodoxy over against the docetism uh, that the Gospel of John is rejecting. Thomas will not worship a god without wounds. Right, exactly. Okay, well, so to build on that Christological insight, uh, we've talked a lot about the doctrine of God here in the Trinity, but so let's not do this at too great length, but um, there's all sorts of seeds here for the development of Trinitarian and Christological dogma, and I'm pretty sure all of the seeds of all sides of the debate in the Filioque controversy as well, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll set that one aside and focus specifically on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it seems that in a superficial reading, that John is full of self-contradictions because on the one hand in 1030, um, in the context of the, the good shepherd discourses, uh, Jesus says the father and I are one. And that's what really like sets off the final like outrage. Um, that will be, that's at the feast of dedication and AKA Hanukkah. And it's the last time Jesus will go to the temple until his final Passover when he is crucified. So that seems to be doing just, you know, naked equation, of of Jesus and God, uh, Father and Son. But then later on, for example, in um in 1428, in the farewell discourse, Jesus says that actually, you know, the disciples should be happy that Jesus is going away and that, and that they will go away too because the Father is greater than I, which you can imagine uh, the early church heretic Arius 
put a lot of weight on that one. But both of these stand within the gospel. And those are just two examples of many what we might call ontological statements about the relationship between Jesus Christ and the one he calls Father, who is God and the Lord God of Israel and all these kind of things. So, uh, Dad, as efficiently as possible, why don't you talk through what you think is like the key, as you said, the key bridging um, theology between the synoptic tradition and the Nicene Chalcedonian tradition that John is offering up here. Right, the way that the way that uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon parse this apparent, as you called it, discrepancy or contradiction between John 10 and John 14, is to say that Jesus, um, as the Son, and His heavenly Father are one in the sense of divine nature. Uh, that is what Nicaea is called homoousius, the same substance, the same essence, the same being. Uh, and that is has to be affirmed uh, for the simple Christological reason that we mentioned at the outset. Jesus has no right to offer and promise uh, to us what he does not by right in his own nature possess. Jesus cannot say, I will give you eternal life unless he has eternal life to give. And so the identity in nature between um, the Son of God and the Heavenly Father is affirmed as in John 10, I and the Father are one. Nevertheless, there's also a difference between Father and Son. And the identity in nature of father and son is not the only thing at stake at all. In fact, I think a real strong tendency in Western theology is to think this is all that's at stake. Are they one or are they not one? And generally, conservative theologians will say, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. That's what matters. And liberal theologians will say, Jesus is human, Jesus is human, Jesus is human, and that's what matters. <laughs> and that, right. that's the, the presupposition of that sterile dispute between high and low Christology, as it's called, is that all that matters is the question of the identity of divine nature. But that's not true for Nicaea and Chalcedon. Because what's equally at stake is the distinction in person between them. The way I like to put this is, yes, Jesus is God, but he is God in the way of being the Son. And moreover, cannot be this Son of God apart from the one he calls his Father, who is also God, but God in the way of being Father. And you can go on and work out all the dialectics there. Uh, I would just mention here a very good book about this with respect to the study of Paul is by Wesley Hill. The book is called Paul, Paul and the Trinity, and it's well worth reading in this regard. So uh, here, the hierarchy that comes up in John 14, the Father is greater and I. Now, the usual Western way of parsing this is Nestorian. Well, Jesus here is speaking, uh, as St. Thomas Aquinas put it, in persona nostra, in our human person. So Jesus is subordinate, not in his divine nature, uh, but in his assumed humanity. 
Well, no, that's not quite right. Uh, it's an <laughs> ontological um, hierarchy, not a moral uh, hierarchy that we're talking about here. The father begets. The father is first in the sequence. The father is the monarch in the archaic sense of that word, that he's the sole principle of uh of, of, the, of the divinity. So the father begets and the father spirates, the father breathes. That's the sense in which the father is greater than I. He is the source, uh, and I am his uh, one and only begotten son, Jesus is saying. It's not a, a subordination of the human nature to the divine nature. It's a very proper uh, and I use the word advisedly, subordination ontologically of son, personal subordination, not ontological subordination of son to father. And this is why we the, the classical language distinguishes between nature and persons. And the the obsession of the Western tradition, as you said, has been on on unity of being or nature. But what you're articulating is much more of the classic Eastern view, which actually puts more of an emphasis on the distinction of persons uh, who are the only actual instances of the being. So there's a, a kind of um, priority actually to the persons over the nature, which cuts a bit against the grain of how Western thinking has tended to go. Yeah, you could just put it colloquially, with God the Father, the buck stops. He's the unbegotten begetter inspirator. And that's exactly what the Nicene Creed says. God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And I want the third thing I want to say here in John is that he doesn't, John does not leave the matter there with simply the identity in nature and the distinction in person. He also talks in the uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17, about the Greek term here that we use is perichoresis, which means something like the, the interweaving dance, dancing around and weaving back and forth with one another. The perichoresis uh, of the eternal love of the Father and the Son, the love that they've had before the foundation of the world. So what is the real uh, character of this divine unity of persons? It's an eternal perichoresis, mutual dance of love between the Father and the Son, which now, for human salvation, has uh, incorporated humanity through Jesus into its own eternal dance. That's the real meaning of eternal life in the Gospel of John. Right. I think it's also interesting to to observe here that there's also an implicit assumption that to be on the receiving end of anything is to be necessarily lesser morally or ontologically. And I think this kind of trinitarian crystal or trinitarian theology really fights back against that and says to be begotten, to be the recipient of God's love, to be the recipient of God's calling or breathing are also divine. They are not necessarily lesser positions. And I think that's just very 
a, a very awkward <laughs> form of um, of theology in the sense of talking about what God is actually like that is part of the the countercultural surprise of the gospel. Yeah, and I, I again, I was very much helped here years ago in studying Karl Barth, who's not always, I think, quite consistent on these issues, but in several places, especially in his later work, he talks about uh, the divine identity of the Son as meaning things like this. There is humility in God. There is obedience in God. There is receptivity in God. And I think these are, again, like you were just saying, Sarah, these are uh, these really complexify the usual associations of God with almighty uh, big sticks or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 There is not only power. There's also love, wisdom, humility, obedience, all those things. Yeah. yeah. The, in, the, in the liturgy of the church, there's a constant trinity of predicates, power, wisdom, and love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, power, wisdom, and love, with these three predicates singled out and associated which each, which each, with each of the persons of the Trinity. And this, I think, is very helpful, too, because you can say something like, yes, God is all-powerful, but he never exercises his power apart from wisdom and love. Yes, God is all-wise, but he never executes his wisdom apart from power and love. Yes, God is love, loving, but he never loves without his wisdom and his power. So the three predicates mutually interpret each other and don't allow any to be absolutized. Great, great. All right, well, we have talked a lot about those Trinitarian themes. So let's go on now briefly to talk about John's ecclesiology, where you see both, for example, again, in chapter 10, where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. There's definitely a lot of implicit critique there, picking up on prophetic language of, of bad shepherds and good shepherds and the Lord God of Israel's being the better shepherd than his uh, straying priests or prophets. But then also... Um, the, especially the teaching on, on love in the final discourse and in chapter 17 and in unity among Jesus' followers. So there's a very a very rich portrait being laid out here for what the nature of the church is supposed to be. But you've told me also that, um, but there there's also suggestions that maybe John's love ethic in the church is troubling because it's ex exclusivistic. So why don't you talk us through that one? Yeah, this was one of the... Uh, you know, Ernst Kaseman, Boltzmann's renegade disciple, had a very conflicted relationship with the Gospel of John. Uh, he wrote some very good stuff on John earlier in his career, but later published a little book simply attacking the Gospel of John uh, as if it were the Trojan horse of uh, a Gnostic pietism in the church and things like that. And, and, I think he was all off the mark there for a number of reasons. But one of his more searching criticisms was that the cosmic horizon of apocalyptic theology, that the creator is after the lost creation and not the rescue of a handful of believing individuals from out of it. I mean, that was a major polemic of Kazeman. And one of the reasons why he wanted to insist insist on the integrity of the apocalyptic theology because it has the whole world in the horizon of God's saving work 
and not just a handful of chosen individuals. And he attributed to the Gospel of John this uh, narrow focusing on the elect, the, the predestined, the ones whom the Father draws to the Son, leaving the rest in darkness. And so that the ethic of the disciples turns inward rather than outward. It's no longer about uh, the redemption of the creation uh, and the body of the creature, as in Romans 8. It's now about the preservation of a conventicle, uh, which cultivates mutual love over against the dark and hostile outside world. If the background to it is this experience of being expelled from the synagogue, I mean, it would be understandable <laughs> under those circumstances. Yeah, I think you have to. Dis- I think we have to distinguish here between Kazeman's broader theological point, which I tend to agree with, uh, and his lack of sympathy for the, which is surprising given his own biography, because he was a member of the Confessing Church in Germany, and he knew what it was like to be under that uh, uh, nighttime, that that dark, dark nighttime of Nazi terror in uh, reigning, and how the little handful of the believers had to huddle together against a very hostile world. So we can't go off on a tangent about why Kazeman shifted from that earlier, more sympathetic understanding of John to a very hostile interpretation of John later on. Uh, But I think that the enduring value of the Gospel of John is that it's written for the church, particularly existentially in the times of persecution. Not all the literature of the New Testament is contextually relevant with the same weight in all circumstances. Obviously, our circumstances cause us to draw on uh, features of Scripture uh, that address our perceived needs. uh, And that is, I think, the case with the Gospel of John, that this is the literature of the persecutors. Where I think the persecuted, uh, and where I think John, where Kazeman goes wrong, is that the love-centered, inward-focused ethic of the Gospel of John does have public shape. And that public shape is in the theology of the martyrs. How does this community of love deal with the outside world? It bravely confesses the truth in a world of mendacity and terror. And it does this knowing that it's going to share in the same fate as Jesus. The confrontation of Jesus with Pontius Pilate in John is the paradigm of the early Christian martyr uh, who, uh, who overrules Pilate's death threats with the sure and certain testimony of the Word of God. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that offers a nice transition from the the ecclesiological love uh, and basis of strength in order to go and make the public witness. And, uh, you know, again, the, the reason you make a public witness is in the hopes that the public will come to see things your way. And uh, you see the transition point, too, to further complexify it, is that every gospel narrative talks about Judas. So there is also the experience of treachery within the community. It's not like the community is is idealized beyond any... any uh, 
possibility of error. So like, um, so the final act begins in, in John 13, uh, which is, you know, really qu quite early relative to the whole, um, length of the gospel. And it's right after Jesus washes his feet, there's allusions to, um, well, so we, we said, um, how there are no exorcism stories per se in John compared to the synoptics, but here's where the devil gets his due in John and in, in 13 two during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God rose from supper. And then we have the foot washing. At the end of the foot washing, Jesus says, not every one of you is clean, clearly alluding to Judas. And then um, there is a supper um, or no, there, sorry, there's, of course, not a supper. Uh, then um, Jesus says again, one of you will betray me. This is echoing what happens at the Last Supper, but does not actually happen at a supper setting here. And then finally, um, uh, Jesus says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. When he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. So I guess that, that I mean, that is the closest you have to a communion, actually. The only person who gets communed is Judas. Huh. Um, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And that is a very fraught statement at the end there. It was night. Now it's the, the reign of Satan and the darkness. So instead of these episodic confrontations, like you see in, in Mark's gospel, in John, it's all kind of been saved up for this cataclysmic moment of betrayal within the community, which is then what drives the darkness and leads Jesus to confront the the uh, the pagan official who denies the even the the existence of truth. Yeah, excellent, Sarah. Wow, what a great recap! And it makes me immediately think again of what I believe are the tendencies of John to depend specifically on Luke's gospel because it's in Luke's gospel that Satan plays the same role in Judas's betrayal. And when Jesus is arrested uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, and tells Peter to put away his sword, he pronounces solemnly, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And thus uh, that whole uh, role of Satan in the betrayal. Now, if you reflect on that, the betrayal of course, is an act of deception. It's an act of mendacity. It's an act of untruth. And as you pointed out, this is what comes uh, to the peak of the expression in the confrontation of, with Pilate, who asks uh, um, cynically, what is truth? Well, truth is incarnate, is standing right before him, but he does not recognize it. So, this uh, brings up the theology of Satan in the Gospel of John, which is one more accent I'd like to uh, include here before we quit. Um, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, the battle against Satan is similarly to all the other themes in the Synoptic Gospels is relocated uh, into the confrontation instead with the synagogue and temple and Pilate. Now, a, a scholar named Graham Twelfth Tree wrote a great book in the name of Jesus, Exorcism Among the Early Christians. 
And he points this out, I think, just splendidly. Uh, the synoptics assert the reign of God as correlative with the expulsion of the demons, uh, as we've noted earlier. But there are no exorcisms occurring in the Gospel of John. What has happened then? And I'm quoting directly from uh, 12th Street. The battle with Satan, though pervading the proleptic ministry of Jesus, now reaches its climax and realization in the cross event. It is the cross which is the grand cosmic exorcism. He's referring to 1231, quoting John. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. End quote. So what we see in John is that the Antichrist ministry of Satan is clarified in the wicked deeds of murder and mendacity, which is contradicted and defeated by Jesus, the martyr, who tells the truth and in the process gives himself on the cross for the sake of the lost. And so one more quote from 12th Tree. It is salvation, knowing and remaining in Jesus and the truth he brings, that is the antidote to the error of the demonic. And it's not just a healing encounter reserved for a few in exorcisms, but the great battle between truth-telling in Jesus uh, by the ways of cross-bearing self-donation over against the lies and murders which are identified as the very work of Satan. That's very provocative. Uh, you know, it reminds me when I, I did an independent study with my beloved Donald Jewell when I was at um, seminary on the Gospel of John. And one observation he made is that the high point of the action in John is actually the extended conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And then the the crucifixion is in a way that the denouement rather than the climax per se. And I, I think if that's the case, then what we, to connect with what Twelve Tree said, is that it is this truth telling that can happen at all times and all places against the the demonic forces that are um, committed to lies and the father of all lies. And then when Jesus does go to the cross, it, it is like the, the punctuation mark to this conversation. But there is something more in the conversation with Pilate in John's gospel than in the synoptics. And maybe that's exactly where it is. The, the As we've said in so many ways, like the communion and, and baptism and the two-tiered story are all ways in which Jesus' story goes on being real, even if you don't undertake or experience the same exact circumstances as Jesus. So also telling the truth in the face of lies is something that will go on being the case. And, uh, you know, if it, if it leads to your crucifixion, then you also have a template for that. But at the very least, even if you are not martyred, you are always called upon to be a truth teller. And let's just remember, hey, in the context of the Gospel of John, that the preeminent truth is simply this, God so loved the world. The world, not just the elect, the saved, but the world, the world that of darkness and lies that commits murders to defend its mendacity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the truth that has to be attested. And the very assertion of the need for such a radical salvation 
is what unmasks the lies that cover up for the murderous ways of humanity. Wonderful. Well, then to, to just bring us to the end there, I, I never thought of it this way before, but I've I've always been charmed by the last verse of this rather um, strong and dire gospel, which is, now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I just thought that's that's such a, a, a sweet and hopeful and thoughtful ending. But it never occurred to me till just now that it doesn't mean the literal story, the, the historical veracity of Jesus, but in fact, the ongoing work that Jesus is doing every day, right up into the presence of John's community and to all the people who follow after and who will read this. So the reason why the world itself can't hold the books is because the world itself is is the book and all the things that Jesus has been doing ever since his he first walked on the, the earth of Palestine. Wonderful. And we can circle back to our early discussion and say to our evangelical friends, if you have been born from above by water and the spirit, you don't ask what would or what did Jesus do. You ask what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing right now? Right. Well, that was that was really rich. I enjoyed that. Me too. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, <laughs> wish wish we gave John a little more airtime in in church. But uh, hopefully, this has been helpful helpful to all of you listeners. So, next time on the show, we will be talking about the German philosopher Hannah Arendt. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.